Well, you have heard the saying to throw yourself at the mercy of the court, right? When you are guilty, when all the evidence is stacked up against you, your attorney might come to you and say, there's only really one thing you can do in this situation because it's not good. We're going to go in there and throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. Pray for the leniency of the judge, right? And we understand that. We understand that. There was really two ways of going about it when you got in trouble as a child, right? There was the tr trying to lie your way out of it. Um, no, nope, I didn't do that. You know, did you eat the cookies? There's crumbs on your face. No, I didn't eat the cookies. Or, yes, I ate the cookies, Mom, and they're so good. You're so great at cooking, baking cookies. You know, there's, there's lying, and then there's just acknowledging and throwing yourself at the mercy of the court. The fact of the matter is we all need mercy, but it seems that some, in terms of God's salvation, have not received that mercy. They have not received that mercy. We all need the mercy of God, but some do not receive it. They reject it. They don't seem to find it. Maybe they don't know that it's available to them. Maybe they just reject the whole thing outright. The Bible says that the mercies of God are new every morning. And as a believer, we're thankful for that. We wake up every day. In other words, you can't exhaust the mercy of God. So God has got this treasure trove of mercy, right, that just keeps flowing every day, every... But somehow some people miss it. They don't get in, you know, they don't get under the spout where the blessing comes out, <laughs> so to speak. They don't get the blessing of God. And what Paul's dealing here in Romans 11, which is our chapter tonight, not the whole chapter, just 10 verses, amen? <laughs> Everyone said amen. amen. <laughs> what Paul's dealing with here is somehow it seems as if that Israel has missed the mercy. They have not received it. And so Paul is continuing to address this, these questions. And of course, I love Paul's style because he writes in such a way anticipating the questions of the reader and the objections that they might have to maybe something that he's saying. And this is no different. So talking about God's mercy tonight and the question of Israel, the, the answer is that there is a remnant. There is a remnant. All have not fallen away. There are those on the earth today that have received the mercy of God, the grace of God. So let's pick it up in... Romans chapter 11, and we're going to read beginning at verse 1, and I'm learning my new preaching style here with multiple gadgets and one arm and all of it. Paul says this, I ask then, oh no, that, that's the wrong, uh, hold on, I'm going to stretch my arm, okay, here we go, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left 
and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So the answer when you're looking around and you're asking a question like this, and this is the answer that Paul gives, are, are, has Israel not received the mercy of God? Yes, there is a remnant. There is a remnant. And God is maintaining that remnant. He has res reserved that remnant. The Apostle Paul has just stated at the close of chapter 10 how Israel had not obeyed the gospel, how the Jews had rejected Christ. And remember, we talked about it wasn't just that they had rejected Christ. It wasn't just that they had not seen, they certainly missed the day of their visitation. Jesus called them out and said, man, if you would have known, if you would have been paying attention that I was coming, this was the day that, that, that the, the prophets foretold that I was coming into the earth. And, and he wept over the city. But it wasn't just that they, they missed Christ. They had run away from God. The, the history of Israel is them running away from God and God going after them and bringing them back and then them running away again. And, and, and it, it's just this ongoing thing, so much so that they had, in some ways, really not believed God. They had not trusted God in that sense. And they should have known. They should have known God. They had all the things going for them of any group of people on the face of the earth that should have known God. They were the ones, right? I mean, they were, you've heard me talk about this. I mean, God gave up all the nations of the earth at Babel, right? He gave up everybody. He turned them over to the gods. He said, you know what? You don't want to serve me. You want to worship these gods. I'm giving you up. I'm giving you up. And then God selected a people that were going to be his. And that Deuteronomy 32 says, my people is Jacob. My people is Israel. But then this people for hundreds of years just complained and walked away from God. Walked away from God. And... Paul finally quotes here, he said from Isaiah 65 too, all day long I have, held out, I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. At, that was at the end of verse, uh, chapter 10. So then he goes into chapter 11 and he's asking, is Israel totally forsaken? I mean, have they not, they just, they've been forsaken? They were supposedly God's people, but they haven't received the mercy of God. So Paul asks the question, he answers the question. He says, well, number one, I'm an Israelite, he says. So everybody has not fallen away. I've received, I'm here to testify to you. I'm an Israelite. Look at the way he says it. He says, I'm an Israelite of the, of the tribe of Benjamin, right? The people of Abraham, I'm of a tribe. I mean, he's naming his tribe. He does that again in Philippians where he goes through everything. I'm the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, you know, concerning the law of Pharisee. Um, so I'm an Israelite. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin and I have received. God has had mercy on me. And of course, you know the story of Paul, right? He was, saw the blinding light. He had that Damascus Road experience. But, God, but Paul goes on. 
He says, but have you considered the situation with Elijah? When Elijah the prophet came to God and, and things had gotten so bad in Israel, right? This was one of the depths, the darkest valleys in Israel's history. So bad that the prophet thought that he was the only one left serving God. And he, to he told God, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, he's like a preacher on Monday morning <laughs> wanting to cash in his chips. <laughs> All right, God, I've had it. I'm done. I'm, I'm out of here, right? And God has to sit him down and say, no, you're not the only one. I still have 7,000 that have not bowed their knee to the Baals. They have not kissed the, the Baals. They have not worshiped the gods. Now, now, I for one think that's a low number, right? You've heard me on this, right? They went from 2 million coming into the land when, when Joshua brought them across the river. The numbers, if you look at the number, the numberings from the book of Numbers, it's a, a book with a clever title. Um, six hundred over six hundred thousand fighting men. So when they do the math, you add in the women and children. Most scholars believe there was two million, two to three million. I I usually say that on the conservative side because it was at least two million. <laughs> two million people coming across the river. Hundreds of years later, they're in the land. They've got Jerusalem. They've got the whole thing, and there's seven thousand left. That have, not bailed, that, that, that have not bowed the knee. But God, man, is a, is a I, I think of myself as an optimist, right? Are you an optimist yes. or a pessimist? I think of myself as an optimist. I always am looking for the silver lining, the way to spin it, the way to look at it, the way to kind of find some ounce of joy in it. And God does. He says, no, I've got, I still have 7,000. I mean, God is the, he, he's the ultimate optimist, right? He's the ultimate optimist. And he says, I've got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. In other words, there are those who are receiving the grace of God. There is a remnant in Israel. And there are those who have responded to God's grace. And God is going to continue to to reach out. He's going to continue to offer his grace. And one of the things this reminds me of is the patience of God. You know, we, we throw out words that we attach to the, to the attribute, you know, to, to God, right? You know, God is love and God is just and all these things, right? God is patient. He's so patient. Peter put it this way in 2 Peter 3, 9. I'll throw it up on the screen. He said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is so patient. He is so patient. And it's a lesson for us. We need to be patient with people. God is so patient with you. God is so patient with me. And we need to be patient with one another. We need to be patient with those around us. There's just a little bit of talk um, over the weekend about this guy, Kanye. Um, 
just a little bit of chatter. And, um, you know, he's, he's, by his own testimony, he's a Christian. He's given his life to Christ. He's confessed Jesus as Lord. And there was immediately all those supporting him. And then some saying, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we will see. But I want to echo the words of Greg Glory this week who said, I commend anyone who makes a move toward God. And God knows Kanye's heart. And, and, um, and it seems to me, because uh, I read through most of the lyrics of the album, wow, some amazing, amazing, amazing Christian lyrics. I mean, honestly, some of the most profound Christian lyrics I've seen in a long time. And you're looking at someone who's followed Christian music for decades, and he is just literally saying, follow Jesus. Get your family together and pray. Keep them from the enemy. Some powerful, powerful stuff. So God is patient. God is patient, and he's not willing that anyone should perish. He wants all to come to repentance and we need to be patient with one another. And, you know, I guess one of the things I always saw with Pastor Chuck Smith is that he was patient and he, you know, there was this erring on the side of grace and there was a lot of people that wanted him to go in there and knock heads. And, and he did probably behind the... I mean, I understand, you know, what Pastor Chuck did behind the scenes, but... He was, he was very graceful, and he would do... I remember one pastor's conference, there was a guy that in the movement who had done a crazy thing where he had given up his church, and then he took it back, and all this crazy stuff, and it was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And Chuck was like so graceful. I went to the conference wanting, like, you know, all right, Chuck's going to lay... You know, Chuck's going to tell us all. Everything's going to be good. We're going to step in here and... He got up there and said, okay, you know, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. Started teaching. I'm like, what happened? Where was the statement? Where was the, <laughs> where was the you know, letting the hammer fall? And I learned an important um, thing in that moment, sitting there, um, that grace can be a messy thing. That grace can be something that, when applied, the onlookers can look on and say, oh, well, they're not being hard enough on this and they're not being, you know, this and this. And that can always probably be said. But it can certainly be said of the Lord. I mean, he's the one when the prodigal came home, he didn't, he didn't have a list of, okay, come on in and have a seat. What did he do? He threw a party. He, 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 he had to, you know, kill the fatted calf, put a robe on his finger, or on, his, on him, put a ring on his finger. He was just so overjoyed that he's come home. I want to err on that side, too. I mean, I could, like, you know, you could pick where you were going to be. Where are you going to line up with your position, you know? And I guess if, you know, we all get to choose, I want to just, I want to err on that side, you know? Grace, mercy, love. Um, it doesn't mean that we don't make judgments. It doesn't mean that we don't discern the fruit. It doesn't mean that we don't do all those things that God has called us to do. But it just means that we're people representing Christ. We're representing the love of Christ. Amen? Amen?
So it is a remnant and it is a remnant of grace. Let's pick it up, verse 5. Back in Romans. Paul says this, Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. It is a remnant of grace. It is not a remnant of works. It is not a, a remnant of keeping rules and traditions, really, anyways. It is a remnant that has simply put their trust in Christ, that has put their trust in receiving his mercy. If you've read through the book of Romans and if you've been through with us and you've been through it before, you can't come away, you can't read this book without realizing that there's nothing really that you can do to earn your salvation. That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, right? Yes. That he's the one that is, is, you know, he's the one that gives the grace. He's the one that has provided the work, uh, done the work of salvation, the atonement. And we have to receive it. We receive it. We humble ourselves, we receive it. There's nothing that we can do. There's a problem, though, with man that we like to turn everything into work. Now, there's good work and then there's bad work, right? In the garden, certainly God put man in the garden, right? And you can't have a garden without a little bit of work. But then there's like where it just becomes overrun by stuff. And that's what the curse brought. When you look at the curse that God pronounced upon man, specifically Adam, he said, you know, the ground is cursed. You're going to, it's going to produce thorns and thistles. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread. Right? And so suddenly the light work of the garden became the heavy work of just surviving and eating bread by the sweat of our brow. So, yes, there is always something for us to do. There is always something that God has called us to do. But it is never to work outside of kind of that lane that God wants us to be in, you know, that lane. And that lane is doing what he's called us to do. But it's first just being in that place of receiving the grace of God and knowing that it is not of work. It is, it is not a, a thing of works. And man, then that's where, you know, there's really two heresies that come up. There's, there's really two. And any heresy that comes up that can be basically funneled back to one of these two things, legalism or Gnosticism. It either comes back to like a secret knowledge and if you're kind of in the in club and, the, and you, know, you have this and whatever, that's, that's Gnosticism. And then the other one is legalism. And then legalism always adds to. It always adds to. Um, God, you know, he did give the Ten Commandments. He gave the 613 laws of the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, Jesus is being questioned by the, the lawyers, the Pharisees, and saying, what's the greatest law? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so what was 10 commandments, what became 613 commandments, what became the 20,000 additional rules of the Talmud 
of the Jewish tradition, Jesus breaks it down and brings us back to two. Right? right? Yes. And I think that's kind of the idea that, you know, it's kind of like God, God, God's desire is ultimately to bring us back to the garden, right? We want to go out there with the thorns and thistles, and God wants to bring us back to the Garden of Eden, right? Because if you read the end of the book, that's what it is, right? Go, go to Revelation, the, end, the last chapter. He's literally brought his people back to the Garden of Eden. There's the river of life. There's the tree of life. It's all there. It's all there. And so we want to work. We don't work for God because we're receiving salvation. We we work for the Lord. We do it unto him because he has set us free, because he saved us. Again, grace is that undeserved gift. It's when we get what we don't deserve. When we get what we don't deserve, it's the grace of God. We did not deserve the cross, but he came and died. We didn't deserve the good news, but someone came into our life, someone came into your life somewhere, and brought the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and for that, I think we can all be forever grateful. Mm-hmm. I thank God for Christian parents. Maybe it was somebody else that came into your life that brought you the gospel, that brought you the word of God. Thank God. Thank God for the grace of God. Thank God for the grace of God Amen. that he pours out into our lives. And there's so many that are sitting in darkness that need that grace and because of the darkness the darkness can be so intense that wow man has created layers upon layers I mean there's just the darkness of just being dead in your sins of not knowing Christ of not having the light of God and then there's the layers of man's darkness that they want to lay on top of you there are those that sit in, in communist North Korea today that do not have the light of the gospel. I just saw this last week, China. There was literally a service going on. The Chinese came in. It was, one of, it was a large church. They came in and destroyed the entire church. The, the people had to literally run out of the church. This is the type of darkness. Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> right? Um, that we've received the gospel. And we pray for those tonight that need the gospel, that need the light of the gospel. An interesting statement there, at the end of that verse there, verse 6. He says, otherwise work is no longer work. And that's kind of, it seems to be a kind of a confusing sentence, really. Otherwise work is no longer work. Well, I don't want work to no longer, I, you know, (laughs) I don't want work to be work anymore either. (laughs) And as I thought about that, there is this thing that like when you're in the grace of God and you're kind of in the zone and you're kind of following the Lord and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, I think there is kind of that. There, there's the work, but there's the lightness of it. 
There's, it's, it's, it's not the heavy burden of the work and the work and the work and the work, but it's like, man, I'm in the zone and I'm doing what God's called me to do and I'm just receiving. I'm waking up every day and I'm receiving the grace, right. the new mercies every day. And I'm just like doing this and I'm doing it. And I'm taking time out for God and I'm, and I'm, I'm you know, connecting with him and his people. And it's a whole thing. So in that sense, work is no longer work. And we're going back to that, right? Because we're going back to the garden. It's not like we're going to be sitting in the garden doing nothing. God didn't have Adam and Eve just sitting there. Just go, Eve, go get us some, you know, go get us some grapes. <laughs> get us some strawberries over there, whatever. I don't know what they had, pomegranates and stuff. I don't know. <clears throat> And it's not as if we're not going to be doing anything else in the kingdom. You know, this stereo, this, this picture of like, you know, we're up in heaven sitting on clouds with little tiny wings with like little harp, gold harps and stuff. Number one, that can't be true. It's not going to be a gold harp. It's going to be like a Les Paul, right? Right, Sean? <laughs> that, 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 that part of that picture just cannot be correct. But we're going to be doing stuff. We're going to be tending to things. We're going to be ruling over the angels, Paul says. We're going to be conducting those things of the king. And, the, and, the, and, and really, if you really want the message correct, as a Christian, that's what our lives should be now. We're actually entering into that now. We're doing the work of the king now and living out our lives when we step in to whatever place right wherever we set the soles of our feet is something that god is utilizing us to bring his presence to bring his word to bring his spirit to bring his joy to bring his light into that situation so let's wrap it up verse seven what then Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded, just as it is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened, so that they do not see and bow down their back always. There is that resistance to the good news. There is the resistance to the grace of God. I don't understand it, but the only thing you can come up with is that God has given every person free will. You know, somehow, some way, this thing is going to end up even better because God is an awesome God and it's going to be it's going to end up better than even it was in the garden. Because God made man and he and he he made everything, right? And he said it was good. 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 The only thing that wasn't good was man to be alone. Then he made Eve and said, "Here you go." And everything was good. But somehow man falls and God's plan of redemption goes into full swing and God is going to bring us, he's bringing us through this threefold process 
that is the Christian experience. Justification, sanctification, and ultimately glorification. And the glorification is, I believe, going to be better than what man's condition was in the garden because we will have been fully brought back from the absolute depths of darkness and death. So much so that God himself was willing to put on human flesh. And as Chuck Missler used to say, that there's a certain aspect of that that is irreversible, that God has put on flesh and he's not gonna take it off. He's got a glorified body. He walked through the walls after the resurrection, right? Remember, they, they disciples locked themselves into the room. And Jesus comes in. Hey, how'd you get in here? <laughs> he's, 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 he's got some supernatural body. It's that glorified body that, that we aspire to, right? So there will always be those that, that resist. They get hung up in a system, a tradition, a ritual, things around them, um, whatever it is that's holding them back, something in their, in their mental, in their way of thinking, um, the way that even God has been presented to them. They reject the idea of God. Or maybe it's the idea that they have of God, which is not even a correct idea of God. Right? That's something that I think about all the time is that if people actually do had a little bit of a better understanding of who God is, his attributes and things, you know, like when we, see, when we say God is love, I mean, he is like, he's ultimate love. When, when we, I was doing, you know, we were in Matthew, we were doing the, um, we were talking about the beauty of the Lord. And he is ultimate beauty. He is beauty and perfection. He is, he is that which is objectively beautiful. And to even comprehend that and yet to reject it and know, knowing that we, we love beautiful things, don't we? We love beautiful things. That's what Steve Jobs understood when he used to make you know, sleek phones and he used to make it look beautiful, <laughs> right? And, but they reject an idea of God that's not even correct. Paul presents two reasons why people reject. God has given them a, a spirit of stupor. The word for stupor there is a word that it actually means numbness resulting from a sting. And this is what has happened to many of the Jews. They have, it's like they've been stung by their own thinking, by their own evil desires. The enemy has come in. They've given the enemy a foothold, whatever it is and they've been stung, and there's a spirit of stupor. And Paul has made the argument before, all the way in this book, in chapter one, verse 28, Paul said he's given him over to a depraved mind. He gave man over to a depraved mind. This is one of the, you know, thinking of what God has just said, okay, you know. And he's referring to, and I've connected that back, and and Michael Heiser has connected that back to kind of the idea of what happened to Babel. He gave them up. He said, okay, oh, there you go. Gave them up to, to, to the depravity, to a depraved mind. And then, of course, in chapter 9, we talked about how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
right? And of course, we walked through that because people have, well, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is it, is it Pharaoh's fault then? And it's, you go through that passage in Exodus, you go through that section and how many times Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He confirms, he confirmed in Pharaoh the hardness of his own heart. So there's that sting of whatever it is that results in just a, just a stupor. You're not seeing clearly. You're not being able to, you're kind of confirmed in your, in your situation. Um, and then the second one, Paul says there, and he's quoting, he says, and David says, look at that, verse 9. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow their back always, bow down their back always. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying that their blessing, the blessings actually had become a, a, a snare. That the, the blessings of the prosperity had become a snare. Um, their table had become a snare. The table means the blessings and provision of God. God is the one who sets the table. Remember, David even said in the 23rd Psalm, he said, you know, you are my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, you make me lie down on green pastures, you lead me beside still waters. You know, at the end of it, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. As God, as God has set the table for us, he has prepared the table. He has blessed us. And this is something that the Christian always needs to understand is that God is our table setter in that sense. He's the one that has provided. That's why we give thanks because yeah, you go out and work and you work for whoever, or you work for yourself and you have a business or you have a job, an employer, whatever it is. But ultimately, and this is something I learned from my dad, because I could, because he echo, he just really said this all the time. There's few things that like you can remember, and I there's some a few points that I can remember. Like, <clears throat> you know, preachers like to, you know, they have a few few of their points that like, no, this is really important. This is really important. And he would always say, God is your source. God is your source, right? And of table, the table becomes a snare when you forget that God's the source, that God is the one that has brought this success into your life, that God has brought this provision, that God has brought the blessing. And what happened was with Israel is that God would bless them and then, you know, start partying, start getting in with the other nations and intermingling and bringing in the, you know, the, the, the reason why God, God did not want them intermarrying with the other nations was not because he was like, it was like he wanted this pure like ethno state. It's because he wanted the purity of their hearts and their religion and their worship to be directed to, towards him. And he knew that, that those other nations would lead them astray. And they always did. You can go through the Old Testament. You can look at almost every character that wandered off and went with this woman or that woman. It started with Esau. Remember that he married one of the 
Midianite girls or whatever, and I think it was his mother that was like grieved. Mm -hmm. Remember, she, the Genesis says she was grieved over that. And of course, you know, Esau becomes the, the, the father of the Edomite people that becomes a, a, a real snare for Israel. And then you can go all the way through to, you know, you, know, you name them, you name them. Samson, just go down the line, go down the list. And it's, it's forgetting that God is the source, that he's the provider, that he's the table setter, that he's the... It, James put it this way. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Amen? So, and that's why Thanksgiving is so important, right? Not just Thanksgiving Day. Every day of Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> Every day is Thanksgiving, for the Christian, because we're giving thanks. It's the fruit of our lips. Paul, the writer of Hebrews, I was just going to say Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says, you know, we bring a sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks. Right? Giving thanks to the Lord. And a thankful heart will, will keep you in that right place. A, a, a thankful heart. Um, an unthankful heart, Wow, it's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time before that plays out um, and, it's, and it's not good. So to sum it all up, God is a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are just available to anyone. You know, we've already, he's already quoted from Joel, whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whosoever. Even at this very moment, who, whoever around the world right now would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. His grace and mercy are available. But yet you can also still reject the mercy of God. Now, let's tie this into Wednesday night or last weekend. Remember we were talking about Revelation 7. There's the remnant in the tribula tribulation. Paul is saying there's always been a remnant, whether it's Elijah's time whether it's the time Paul is writing and people are looking on going, wait a second, has Israel lost it? Are they outside of the mercy of God? Now, even into the tribulation, right. the 144,000, yeah. there's always a remnant. And so that remnant will be saved. And God is merciful. So let us be representatives of God, of his love, of his mercy, of his grace, and as for me, I want to, between judgment and mercy, I want to err on the side of mercy.